Hello, everyone, and welcome to I4CP's Next Practices Weekly podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Tom Stone, a senior research analyst at I4CP, the Institute for Corporate Productivity, the leading authority on next practices in human capital. The Next Practices Weekly podcast is one of the ways we share those practices with you by interviewing top HR leaders and facilitating discussion with the broader HR community on what high-performance organizations are doing differently with their people practices. From HR strategy to talent acquisition, learning and development, diversity, equity, and inclusion, and much more. Recently, my co-host Carrie Bevis and I shared 10 takeaways from the recent 2023 I4CP Next Practices Now conference, which was held in late March in Scottsdale, Arizona. From culture, flexible work, talent challenges, DE&I, and artificial intelligence, we covered highlights from the conference sessions on these topics and many more. But before we get to that, did you know that I4CP has an executive search practice that specializes in recruiting diverse and high-performing human capital leaders? We help our clients, whether I4CP member organizations or not, to successfully build their human capital leadership teams through effective placement of chief human resource officers, as well as leaders of diversity and inclusion, talent acquisition, learning and development, total rewards, and people analytics functions. To learn more, just visit i4cp.com forward slash executive search. Okay, now for the 10 takeaways from the recent 2023 I4CP Next Practices Now conference. Um, One thing I want to note is that uh, when we say 10 uh, takeaways from this conference, um, these are not sort of the official takeaways that I4CP is putting out there. These are sort of Tom and Carrie's perspective. Uh, I'm the one that that uh, put together the slide. So any anything that's obviously missing here, you can certainly blame me. I think everyone at the conference had far more than 10 important takeaways and, and everyone's perspective as to what the most important 10 would be would of course vary from person to person. But with that caveat said, uh, I think we've got a, a nice, a nice set of things to share with you today. First off, though, I want to walk through a few things besides the content, besides the the great sessions and presentations that we had. Um, First off, to know this was our biggest conference ever in terms of attendees. We had over 500 in-person attendees. You see the the sort of breakdown. These are high-level HR Leaders, uh, over 20% are CHROs or chief people officers, uh, over 50% are at least the heads of their HR function. Uh, so very different than a lot of other HR conferences that you maybe have been to or are familiar with. And then another uh, indicator of how different our event is, we have no expo, we have no trade show, there are no vendors at the I4CP event either. Uh, prior to the conference, uh, we have our six Uh, high-level HR boards, the Chief HR Officer Board, the Chief Learning and Talent Officer Board, Chief Diversity Officer Board, you see all six of them here. They meet all day on the Monday prior to the conference, the day before the conference kicks off. You see the photos that we took. Um, Not everyone's included in these photos. Some folks were off on calls or having a quick snack, Um, but uh, you see here uh, the ones that we're able to gather for the photos, and they dove deep into a variety of topics specific to each of their functional areas. Also on that first day pre-conference, we have two uh, workshops. Uh, We have a culture renovation workshop that was led by Jay Jamrog, and we had an adaptive teaming for hybrid work, a very timely topic. Um, That one uh, was led by Michael Arena. So uh, lots of people attended those. Like a lot of other conferences, always great to have pre-con events. 
I see a couple of hands raised. Uh, are those uh, folks with questions, perhaps? I think that's my fault, Tom. I wanted to see a raise of hands from the audience of how many attendees <laughs> on this call were actually there. Got and if it. One of those people who raised your hands, please be active in the chat. We want to hear where some you have some other big takeaways, or you just want to add on to something that we're sharing. Thank you for that. Um, thanks for for doing that, and lots of hands going up. So lots of people uh, that were at the conference also on the call with us today. Thanks, Carrie. Uh, just a couple of other things to note before we get into our, our key takeaways from the event. Um, there was lots of opportunity, of course, for both group networking and one-on-one -on -one networking at the lunches. We had table rounds where people could gather uh, by different topic areas. Uh, some of our exchanges were represented this way, as well as some other topics that we don't yet have exchanges on. And then a new feature that we had this year was our Connection Cafe. You'll see the word next come up a lot because this was the Next Practices Now conference. So you see what we did there with that name. And this was a new feature where you use the conference mobile app, uh, and then you could schedule time with other conference attendees or with I4CP staff to have one-on-one -on -one, uh, sort of private conversations at the, at the table rounds that were set up. Uh, this was a great new feature. Uh, one of your uh, team members, Carrie, Kiara Nicholson, set this up. Uh, anything you want to say about this? It was great to see how active it was. Yeah, I love that each year at the conference, we have a little bit of room to experiment with something new. And what the community team really wanted to come across is that we have this amazing opportunity to come in person together once a year, and you're going to have a lot of spontaneous networking opportunities, but also we want to create opportunities for very intentional networking. So you can find those that share a similar job title or maybe in your function and actually have a place just outside of the ballroom to be able to have some of those deeper one-on-one -on -one conversations. It really warmed my heart as mm -hmm. a lead of community here to see so much of that happen, if not inside, people taking advantage of the sunshine and doing it outside. Um, but hopefully it's something that we'll build on next year. Yeah, absolutely. I think it was a, a real winner, a great addition to the event. Something that we've been doing for many years now, in fact, this was our 10th annual Best Buddies Friendship Walk. For those of you that maybe aren't familiar with Best Buddies, uh, Zeta has just put the link in the chat. Thank you, as always, Zeta. Um, this is an organization that helps people with intellectual disabilities find gainful employment. Um, we, we've all heard the numbers of, of how low those percentages are, but it would be a lot lower without organizations like Best Buddies. They're really the leader in this space. Um, and we do a friendship uh, sort of charity contribution walk each year at the conference. And you see here the folks that got up bright and early. I think it was maybe 6 or 6.30 a.m. for this walk. Uh, and again, this is a tradition at the I4CP conference. I see myself somewhere in that. <laughs> and it is always the most heartwarming part of the conference for me. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, Another thing we always do at the conference is give out our Next Practice Awards. Um, here you see how we teed up these awards, uh, and we're already asking for contributions for next year's conference, even though we just rolled off the 2023 event. Uh, basically, if, if you're doing something interesting at your organization, if you're showing significant ROI from a program, an initiative, if you're breaking new ground or advancing your field, we want to hear about it. Um, we had about a dozen finalists, far more that, that applied, of course, about a dozen finalists, and we revealed at the conference and then through press releases the four Next Practices Awards winners, which were PWC Land Lakes, Dow, and Experian. It was great to see you up on stage, Carrie, along with your, our co co uh, colleague, Nina, giving out these awards. Yeah, this was a highlight for me. We had more 
nominations and entries than we have any year in the past. There are so many great themes that came out, a lot of incredible initiatives on ERGs and DEI initiatives, but also flexible work and supporting people in frontline roles and in office jobs. So was thrilled to congratulate these four. And also a lot of these people were on stage sharing just in other presentations that we brought up. So. Yes, and I know you're about to share uh, about all of the other great um, members, thought leaders that we celebrated. I'll share while we're pulling the slides up that my background is actually an image from our awards after party. Uh, this is our champagne wall. So we really try to make it very special because we know that these winners put in a lot of hard work into their initiatives over the years because we're looking for them to demonstrate impact on those ideas as well. Uh, so we will be hosting all of their case studies. We'll drop some links to those in the chat, I'm sure. And we'll also be rolling out all of the others that we've received over the next couple of weeks. Yeah, and then lastly, we gave out three special awards, one to Gary Hamill, who gave one of the presentations at the event. Like Bev K last year, he was given an Industry Legend Award from I4CP. Brenda Suguru, who is the Chief Learning Officer at EY, was given the Board Member of the Year. I mentioned earlier uh, what our board groups are all about. Uh, and then Christine Deputy was given a new award this year, the CHRO of the Year Award from Pinterest. Um, she also has been a guest on this call series, so you can look that up in the archives and learn all about what they've done with their uh, excellent programming at Pinterest. I loved that moment. Kevin Oak surprised her. Uh, so that yes. was a, a truly beautiful moment to just see her. I think maybe even tear up a little bit on stage. And I've had a chance to go and visit their headquarters and see her work with her HR team. And it was truly well-deserved. Yeah. Absolutely. As Kevin Oaks, our CEO, uh, always likes to share, um, a lot of what goes on at this conference is not shared outside the conference. That's certainly true for the board meetings the day before the event, but even uh, in terms of uh, some of the presentations and so on. So there are some things, some of the private conversations, obviously, by HR leaders that we won't be sharing on this call or otherwise. We call that the cone of silence. If you remember this from the old Get Smart series, uh, people literally didn't have cones like this uh, to keep things private at the conference, but the, but the concept is the same. Um, and so with that, um, we are going to be sharing some of the key takeaways from the event, things that we feel like we are able to share with the broader public. So let's dive right in. Um, again, apologies for that earlier uh, snafu, but great to see that we're back up close to 200 folks on the call. All right. Um, so first off, uh, culture, if there was one concept or one topic that sort of resonated throughout the entire event, I would say it's culture. And so much so that I heard a few folks wondering if HR at this point really just is people and culture. We've seen a, a, a transition in some ways. Oftentimes, CHROs have been retitled chief people officers. So that's a trend that's been going on. And culture hits so many different aspects of an organization. Um, we've done some major studies on it over the years, our culture renovation study that led to Kevin's book that you see there on the left, a critical study where only 15% of cultures that uh, organization cultures that try to transform themselves, try to renovate, are actually successful. And then our new study, culture fitness, uh, which I'll speak to again in just a moment, uh, high performance organizations, uh, six times more likely to have fit cultures as opposed to toxic ones. Uh, great new study um, that, uh, again, uh, you can download. Uh, Zeta will put the link to the to the brief that's available to, to everyone. 
Uh, Kevin had had led off the conference with some of the, these points about what organizations that talk to- with toxic cultures are far more likely to struggle with. Senior leaders who don't trust their employees, the vice versa also being true, employees not trusting senior leaders. Leaders favoring on-site versus remote employees is more common in those with toxic cultures and, and unsafe environments for expressing opinions and concerns. Um, we had a great call uh, on this new study um, back on February 16th, where Kevin and Catherine Brecken walked through some of the results. Um, Catherine also gave a presentation on those results to sort of close out the conference last week. And the one slide that I'll share is sort of the key takeaway, which is the seven habits of very healthy cultures. Um, these slides, by the way, that we're sharing today will be available along with the recording of this call uh, at our archive up at the I4CP website. So no need to madly take down notes from all of these takeaways from the event. But the seven habits are more flexible work arrangements, having a more learning culture or a learning mindset, um, having your organization's board that really cares about culture and is starting to ask for culture metrics, leaders that lead by example, leaders that are held accountable for employee outcomes, leaders regularly communicating the values of the organization and doing so, th- so, so through different uh, modalities and in different ways, and then addressing poor behavior when it does arise. Kerry, uh, just open question. What are your thoughts on, on culture uh, and, and what you saw about that topic at the conference? I think that if you're an I4CP member and you are in that group that has been trying to make the case for flexible work, you absolutely need to go to this study and pull out some of these things because Catherine did an amazing job really weaving together the business case of why um, healthy cultures, flexible work arrangements, so many things you just listed correlate to high performance. And if you want to get nerdy with it, there's a lot you can dig into there. Yeah, absolutely. Zeta uh, has has added some of that material out in the chat. Um, we had other presentations that hit on culture, as I was alluding to. It really sort of permeated really the entire event. One was Joe Whittinghill from Microsoft, but uh, I can't really uh, highlight everything uh, in, in a one-hour presentation here. So what I wanted to highlight was Anna White, uh, the chief people officer at F5, who spoke to their culture renovation work. Uh, she shared these two sets of principles, the BF5 cultural behaviors and the lead F5 leadership principles, um, solid uh, group of, of new principles that they came up with. And the point I wanted to make here, they didn't just come up with this overnight. What she shared was that this was a multi-year process uh, for coming up with these new principles uh, to guide their organization moving forward. And then in particular, I wanted to share what the results have been. Now, this is just anecdotal. These are some of the open answer questions from their regular pulsing of their employees. But take a look at the difference between what their culture was like in 2017 versus what it's like now in 2022 and, and 2023. People saying I have low confidence in the leadership team uh, versus the company-wide investment in culture really shining through. People saying F5 feels like it's in panic mode versus I feel like I belong and I'm appreciated and trusted here. And that I, and that F5 really walks the talk, so to speak. Um, even questions around our product lineup, cloud, why are we so far behind versus our innovation and future is exciting with a clear direction. Again, showing what Carrie noted, uh, the, the, the direct uh, through line from culture to performance and and productivity. And this is why they were the first ever recipient, I believe, of the Culture Renovation Award. So we also were able to give uh, Anna White an award on stage after she shared this. Yep. 
and I believe we, we've had Anna White on this call series before. Mm. We've done some case studies. So once again, particularly for I4CP members, just go out to the website, search on her name, uh, and you'll be able to find more about uh, their journey through culture renovation. All right, uh, culture will continue to pop up on the rest of this call, but I wanted to uh, move on now to a sort of second key takeaway, um, and that that is beyond HR now having a seat finally uh, over the past, uh, say, decade or two at the C-suite. HR is now seen more and more as critical to the board, your organization's board of directors. Um, in particular, we did a study that's shown here on the right, human capital data considerations for corporate board of directors. And we found in a survey, I believe that was conducted um, with the, with a group of, of women that are on, on boards of directors. And we found that what directors find valuable but often aren't given in terms of metrics and measurements are the list of things you see here on the left and top of that list, culture, health. Some of the other metrics, uh, maybe ones you would have expected to see like internal movement rate, employee exit data, uh, but interesting to see all of these different metrics um, that boards of directors haven't traditionally been given, but increasingly uh, are being given more and more because they're asking for it. Yeah. We had two. Um, Go ahead. Well, I think that some of the board presentation on that one was so interesting. And the thing that really stuck with me that I would take away if I was a CHRO or someone in the position of even putting together a presentation that you know will go to the board is that you can feel confident in what you know and that you're often in the position of educating the board why culture is important, why they need to be looking at some of these statistics um, with you or KPIs with you and not being afraid of sharing the parts, the tricky parts, the challenges you're facing, that you're on a journey. We're showing here, we had two sessions that were on this topic. We had uh, Michael Horn along with Mark Inglesian take the stage and, and discuss this kind of connection between HR people and the board. And then our own Kevin Martin, who I see is on the call here today. Kevin, could I ask that you come off mute and, and maybe share just a couple of words? Uh, you had a conversation on stage with Kristen Robinson and Leah Sweet. Um, anything you'd like to share on, on this topic of uh, HR and, and people's and, and culture's increasing importance for boards of directors? Yeah, thanks, Tom. And hi, Carrie. Um, so <laughs> um, I, I think one of the big clarity points that came up that they tried to get across was how HR really needs to contextualize the data so much more for the board. You know, in, in many instances, and we saw this in that research that we've done, Tom and Carrie, is that HR presents a lot of data to the board, but the data itself tells a very incomplete story. And so what HR, what's incumbent upon the CHRO is to be able to say, this is the human capital data we're sharing, and this is why it matters. This is how it links to the strategy, or this is why I'm emphasizing this at this juncture right here. And a good example, and I apologize, there's a vacuum in the background here. I didn't know I was going to be called off mute, but um, one of the examples they gave is how, you know, so many, I think it's like 77% of board directors we surveyed, and we surveyed a lot of them, so that they get attrition data. But attrition data on its own, it, there's little value there. And what the real criticality there is, well, what, what is this, you know, where is the attrition happening? What are the factors leading to it? What are we doing around it? So think leading indicators versus lagging indicators. So that's one of the big stories that came out there. 
Yeah, so important. Yeah, absolutely. So, so important to be able to give context and insights and not just share sort of bare, bare uh, data with, with your board members. And no worries, Kevin, uh, wasn't able to hear any vacuum. You, you must have one of those quiet ones. Um, so that was the second uh, takeaway that I wanted to share with you from the conference last week. The third, uh, I'm just calling AI, 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 AI. It was everywhere. Uh, certainly, it was part of the introductory remarks from from Kevin Oaks to kick off the event, but it, it, it came up before that. It came up, frankly, at the board meetings. It was a hot topic, I know, at several of the board meetings on Monday. Um, obviously, ChatGPT uh, is the uh, generative AI tool that has gotten everyone's uh, attention, everyone's imagination. Everyone has jumped to it because it's open and usable by all. Um, but there are some others uh, that we share at the conference that have also grown in popularity that do other things, creating images instead of text responses. Um, you see Bard AI, which I believe is from Google, uh, some of the other ones. And this is just a small sampling of all the AI tools. There's a massive, massive amount of investment in this space that's going on. Uh, and it's something that we know that organizations are waking up to and, and getting serious about. Um, we did a lot of poll questions at the conference. And you see here one of the results from the, from the poll audience. Looks like we had about 100 respondents to this one that was live in the room. We asked, does your organization use ChatGPT or some sort of similar generative AI to automate some job roles yet? 10% said yes. 9% uh, uh, said no, not yet, but plan to soon. 74% uh, said not discuss this yet. So we at I4CP are going to be on a mission to help you start discussing this. We've already had one flash member call um, uh, a month or so ago. We're going to have another one in early May. But before that, as I announced earlier, uh, we're going to have a call in two weeks. I'm sorry, next week uh, here at Next Practices Weekly Series, where we're going to be uh, covering this topic uh, and in particular looking at its impact for HR. So lots, lots more to come on this topic because uh, I know it's on a lot of minds of a lot of HR leaders. wanted to share this quote from Sam Altman. He's the CEO of OpenAI. He wasn't at the conference, of course, but but uh, he said he said that what you see there on the top right, let society toy with chat GPT now while the stakes are low, let people learn from it. So that's what we're going to be doing at I4CP is helping all of you, both our member organizations and the broader HR public uh, to really delve into this in a, in a responsible way. We did have a session on HR and using generative AI at the conference where Carrie and, and my colleagues, Judy Elbers and Molly Lombardi, helped folks walk through and just sort of kick off this conversation for a lot of folks. As we just saw on the last slide, most organizations haven't been delving into this yet. Not like you don't already have full plates with everything else going on. And yet this needs to be added to that plate. You see some of the areas of HR where AI is already making an impact. Um, and as Judy says, and I don't know if this is a quote unique to her, or if she got this from someone else, but I attribute it to her. She said, you can't have a perspective on the future of work without at this point having a perspective on AI. And I, I completely agree with that. Gary, what are your thoughts on, uh, on, on this interesting topic that's, that's arisen sort of suddenly? I loved this session because something we did is we had conversations at our tables and it really crystallized for me that across our audience, there was a wide array of perspectives on AI. Those that are already doing things with it, have been doing things with it for a long time and are ready for this new wave. Others that are nervous and some of their younger, newer colleagues are kind of surprising them with deliverables where they have used ChatGPT and they're just learning about it now. Um, so I think for anybody that 
is feeling new or a little bit nervous to ChatGPT, this conference was a huge wake-up call for me to start developing the skill of what Judy called um, prompt crafting prompt to crafting, learn how to right. talk with these services. Um, so if you're not the person to do that, I would look for somebody on your team to start developing those skills or understanding how other people in the org or industry are going to be using those skills. Yeah, I'm glad you brought that up, prompt crafting, because that is one of the things to better use something like ChatGPT and other tools like it effectively. And I'll note, I'm already seeing some people saying that they're being hired into organizations with roles uh, where prompt crafting is part of the job description. I've seen two instances of that already uh, in the past couple of weeks. So again, uh, join us next week at the same time for the next Practices Weekly Call, because we're going to be joined by Judy and Molly, who you see here on the screen, and they're going to sort of walk through much of what they did at the conference and go beyond that, because this is something that we're extending our knowledge on uh, on, a, on a daily basis, it seems. All right, the next sort of takeaway that we wanted to highlight here on this call is in the area of DEI. Uh, here's a, a result from our recent culture study. High-performance organizations are 38% more likely than low performers to see a commitment to diversity, inclusion, and belonging as, a, as an important element of their EVP in 2023 and going forward. Um, DEI is something, again, that's grown in importance over the past several years, was always there, like AI and technology as well, uh, uh, on the radar for a lot of HR leaders, but it's really expanded, obviously, in recent years. We've had a lot of great calls in this call series uh, since early 2020, so again, I would encourage you to go back through that archive. We've had a lot of great guests sharing what best and next practices they're pursuing at their organizations uh, in this arena. One of the things that jumped out to me, and I believe it was F5, uh, again, Anna White that maybe shared this, um, was they used the acronym IDEA, I-D-E-A, to get the word allyship mixed in there with the I, the D, and the E. Um, I was curious, uh, we don't have a poll set up for this, but I'm curious in the chat, if your organization doesn't just use DEI or DE and I, sometimes there's an ampersand in there. Um, if your organization uses a different acronym, I'd be curious to know what that is and maybe just a few words on, on why you think you're using something different. Sometimes a B is used in there for belonging. Um, just curious to, to get some feedback on that. I've seen A for accessibility. Thanks, John, for that. A lot of organizations have expanded it to DEIB to include belonging. I love adding the word network in there every time. Jedi, I like that one, being a Star Wars fan myself to include yeah, justice, yeah. love it. Values, vibe, oh, that's a good vibe. one. Vibe, that's a good one. So vibe uh, loses the sort of numeric one of diversity, but includes values, inclusion, belonging, and equity. I like that one as well. Interesting. Well, thanks for sharing those. Um, uh, we had an important guest, actually the first guest of the conference after Kevin's introductory remarks was Ellen McGirt, senior correspondent for Fortune. And she shared a lot of her own personal stories uh, coming up as, as a journalist, uh, with some battles she has faced. Um, but two key takeaways for me was her, her ask of everyone in the room to defend DEI going forward, whether it's from political attacks or internal uh, budget cuts. Uh, this is an area that's grown tremendously in the past few years. And when things grow fast, 
uh, if a recession hits or uh, budget contractions happen, sometimes the things that grew fast uh, are the first things to, to be looked at and scrutinized. And she urged all of us not to do that. Um, she said HR leaders really need to prepare to defend their DEI programs to the company board, uh, to their leadership, and, so that they can keep advancing on their results. And then the second key takeaway that I had was that trust is key, not only trust in HR and business leaders, but also trust specifically across the organization's values and the pay equity uh, programs that they've put in place and so on. Uh, any other takeaways for, for you, Carrie, across not just Ellen's uh, session with Kevin on stage, but on this topic in general from last week? You know, I really took this kind of feeling of a word of warning coming out of this. I think culture war was mentioned um, a couple of times in conversations with Ellen. And I think within the I4CP community, within our membership, everybody understands the importance of these initiatives. And I think it was a reminder that even though we don't want to be in the position of continuing to defend them and build the business case, that may be the future, at least in the short term, that we're looking at and just to continue coming ready um, with those stats, with those words, um, so that we can keep making progress. Yeah, I, I'd agree with that. Uh, and we did have a, a second uh, sort of, in a way, DEI focused session uh, where our colleague Lori Likens, our VP of Research, sat down and interviewed Michelle Meyer Ship, uh, who has had a very interesting career. She joked that she was uh, in the past the HR leader for Major League Baseball, and I believe she had some teenage or perhaps grown sons who wondered why she would ever leave such a position as head of HR at baseball. Um, but she's now the CEO of Dress for Success Worldwide, a very interesting organization that helps women professionally network with each other, um, you know, even as the name would suggest, uh, help them with, uh, you know, acquiring clothing if they're lower income women professionals, um, you know, business attire and so on. Uh, and she and Lori had a great conversation around gender inequality, uh, not just in the United States, but on a more global scale. We just had uh, Women's History Month recently. And so it was well-timed conversation there as well. Uh, any takeaways for you, Carrie, on, on, the, on the gender equality side from the conference? I mean, I just really love hearing Lori talk about this. I mean, she's been writing in this field for so long, and it was really cool as a woman in the working world to hear from these two. And so just a more takeaway of feeling inspired by hearing their conversation and realizing how far this industry has come, but we've got a ways to go still. Yeah, each year the numbers uh, get revealed and it seems like progress is, is far slower than it should be. And I'm glad you called out Lori's long history of writing in this area. Um, she's long had a column here at I4CP called the She Suite. Sometimes I stumble over pronouncing that. A little bit of a tongue twister, but uh, between her Twitter account and writing she's done uh, focusing on this issue of gender inequality, I'd encourage everyone to check that out at our website. Um, it's, a, it's basically a filter on the articles and, and check out Lori on Twitter as well. All right, the next uh, key takeaway from the conference last week, at least according to Tom, if you will, uh, is on the future being flexible, on uh, the flexibility at work, hybrid work, remote work, uh, return to office, all of those sort of bundle of topics, which we have spent a lot of time on, uh, on our Next Practice Monthly and now Next Practice Weekly series. I love this cartoon that uh, I forget if it was Kevin Oaks or someone else shared at the conference. Um, I think it is true that years from now, we might look back on at least some of the things we're discussing and wonder why uh, they were such big uh, topics of, of dispute or discussion. 
Once again, we asked a poll question of the people in attendance there at the conference. Looks like we had maybe around 150 or so responses to this one. We asked, how many days are your employers employees required to be in the office? And the obvious implicit context there is for those that have a job that could be done remotely, um, uh, not those that have to be on, on site. It was interesting that 29% actually said none. Uh, that they allow full flexibility, full remote uh, for a good portion of their workers. You see 3% only requiring one day, 24% requiring two days. Uh, solid 35%, the largest response was three. That does seem to be um, a common response for those that have a hybrid workforce. So that was some interesting data gathering from the participants at the conference. We then had a couple of sessions uh, that, that really spoke to this whole notion of flexible and remote and hybrid work. Uh, the first was me, you see there on uh, on the stage, interviewing Wendy Barnes, who is the chief people officer at GitLab. If you're not familiar with GitLab, um, they have been completely remote from the inception of the com company almost 10 years ago, 2014. So not new to this world of remote work like so many other organizations for the past three years. They've got about 2,000 employees. They're spread across 60 countries. And, and because they've been completely remote for so long, they really have a very different approach, both in terms of their culture, but also in terms of just some very tactical and practice-oriented things. She described how they have a handbook-first approach to communication. And by handbook, she doesn't just mean like a typical HR handbook. She means a massive knowledge base. I think she said it was over 2,500 pages long. They do a lot of things where they asynchronously document decisions and practices and approaches, uh, all sorts of information. Information. They document it there first before it goes into Slack or Teams, before it goes into email. Um, so a very different approach to knowledge management. Um, they're a values-driven culture. Um, she gave us the acronym they use, CREDIT, which I really like. Which stands for Collaboration, Results, Efficiency, DE&I, uh, Iteration, and Transparency. Um, and as I've noted on some calls at I4CP before, they've been very open about their remote culture and remote approach for many years now. And they've made available all of their tips and best and next practices in a remote playbook. Um, so Zeta's already added that to the chat. Thanks again, Zeta, for doing that. I'd highly encourage you, as I did everyone at the conference last week, to download this guide because it really gives you a lot of in-depth uh, knowledge that they've gained over the years. Yeah. And, you know, we have the Getting Hybrid Work monthly call series. We've been writing about flexible work for so long, but one thread that I wanted to pull through is how it connects to... Oh, sorry. My screen went down for a second. I thought it was me all over again. No, no. Um, and how it connects to so many of the other themes that we've been talking about, the importance of being able to hire a more diverse workforce if they can work from different places, the flexibility for people to take care of their personal well-being if they have that kind of flexibility. So I think being able to tie all those things together when you're making this move towards greater flexibility is key. Ooh, thank you for pulling this one up. Yeah, this was the other key event that really hit on this topic head on, which was, again, Christine Deputy, our new CHRO of the year at I4CP. Uh, she's the CHRO at Pinterest. She talked a little bit about their PinFlex program, which, again, we've had her as a guest on this call series in the past, um, uh, giving greater agency uh, 
to help reduce stress levels. So again, speaks to well-being, which we'll see here in a moment was another key takeaway at the event. Um, they've tried to steer away from sort of labeling people into, into buckets like remote and hybrid to allow for ultimate flexibility. They even allow people to live in a different country entirely for up to three months of the year. Um, they do still have quarterly in-person events. Um, uh, and of course, they try and encourage folks to come into the office where it makes sense, but to do so in a very intentional and purposeful way. Yeah, I think that maybe when she's come and spoken to us in the past, we've had some really great conversations about why we're bringing people together and how we create that excitement and make it worth the commute to come in. And I also just really love that they're focused on not labeling people as remote hybrid because I can play that forward into the future where we create all kinds of stereotypes around that. Yeah, agreed. Let's uh, let's keep that from happening as much as possible. So, as I said, another uh, sort of key takeaway from the event: uh, like culture, like DEI, like technology with AI, uh, holistic well-being was really a common thread that went through many, many of the sessions that we held at the event last week. Um, this slide we've shared on this call series many times. This is our study from a few years ago. Uh, on next practices in holistic well-being, where we broke out well-being into six categories. Obviously, physical health has long been a, a focus of organizations. Mental and emotional health has become more important over the past three years than ever before. You see the other four there, financial, community, career, and social relational well-being as well. We've really touched on all of these over time. Um, as I said, I'm not going to spend too much time on this now because in two weeks' time, we've got Rob Cross and his co-author uh, of his new book, The Microstress Effect. Rob and Karen Dillon will be joining us. His new book comes out on April 18th, so our, our session here at Next Practices Weekly will be well-timed for that. Um, he did, uh, as Rob always does, uh, gave us a flood of great insights and information at the conference, and I'm sure he will do so on our call coming up. But this is an interesting angle on the whole broader topic of burnout, which itself is a key aspect of our mental and emotional health. Uh, Carrie, I know you've been a long, longtime colleague and friend of Rob. Uh, I'm sure you got a lot out of his presentation uh, at the event last week. Yeah, I do. I think some of my team realized like, oh, the things that he was talking about on the stage are things that you do. And like, yeah, I really find all of his research so personally actionable. And one thing I love when Rob presents is that we usually have handouts or some type of tool for our audience to be able to self-reflect and then talk about some of the small tweaks that they want to make in their own life so that they too can live a more purposeful Light. So it's hard for me to not say more, but I will try to keep it until we get to delve in in a couple weeks. Yeah, we're just teasing it up for a couple weeks from now, where I'm sure Rob will reprise what he did at the conference last week. Um, for those that aren't familiar with the term microstress, I did just want to share what that means. Moments of stress triggered by the people in our professional or personal lives that are so routine that we barely register them, but whose cumulative toll is debilitating. So much of Rob's research is like this. It's looking at little things that maybe we often ignore, um, whether it's microstress. In the past, it was collaborative overload, um, the way we onboard employees, uh, things like that, but then really doing extensive research to find out just how much we can improve our lives. Uh, maybe it's 10%, maybe it's 30% uh, if we just change some of our day-to-day -day practices. Exactly. The things that are invisible and normalized, that we actually have some agency to change if we start to recognize it. The next uh, 
sort of takeaway that we wanted to share with you from the event last week was all around talent. Um, I'm, I'm referring to the a sort of talent paradox here. A lot of organizations going through some layoffs, and yet I still sensed at the conference last week an almost desperation at times around hiring people with certain skills and certain roles. Um, so that hasn't gone away. Um, we may, might no longer be in a great resignation phase of the economy, might be tipping more towards uh, cost consciousness and, and some degree of layoffs. And yet, uh, there's still a need to, to consider, do we have the right skills in the organization? Um, we did a quick poll, again, of the audience that was there last week. Looks like for this one, we had close to 200 responses. And we asked, does your organization have a skills database? Now, we had previously learned that about 18% of organizations do have one. And as you see here, only 10% have one that covers all employees. And we got a pretty similar result uh, from the folks at the conference last week, where 16% said yes, our organization does have a skills database. What was nice to see, though, was another 22% saying not yet, but we're currently building this out. Um, that, that was uh, heartening for me. I conducted a lot of interviews with HR leaders on this subject over the past couple of years, um, and that number wasn't as high as that, I would say, anecdotally from those interviews. So good to see that that is on the way. Um, we had a panel uh, with Jennifer Landis uh, from Black Hills Corporation, Brenda Sugru from EY, and Kim Rose from Vertex Pharmaceuticals, where we talked all about this topic of skills data, skills taxonomies, talent mobility, and, and upskilling as well. You see here some of the key takeaways. A lot of organizations still facing a, a talent hoarding issue from some of their leaders, as opposed to seeing talent as a shared asset across the organization. You see some of the other challenges being resources, time, transparency of the talent mobility process. Um, but these uh, three HR leaders shared on the stage some, some great new practices practices, um, how to uh, get the skills data from the employees in a way that makes them want to contribute it instead of being skeptical by maybe tying it into other initiatives. Here we see that through line with DE&I again. Uh, and then even for those organizations that maybe can't use one of the fancy talent marketplace platforms that have become very popular for larger organizations to roll out, there's still a lot that can be done to increase talent mobility. Just by recognizing managers that do a good job of developing their people, um, doing that publicly in the organization, or even adjusting organizational structure. Jennifer Landis shared uh, how in their company, being a, a, a bit of a different organization, more manufacturing uh, focused than tech, um, they've, they've actually adjusted their organizational structure to create some career pathways that didn't exist before, thereby increasing talent mobility where they could. This was one of the, a very star-studded stage. I loved these three women interacting with you, Tom. And of course, Kim Rose at Vertex, they took home the award for a high-performing organization. Brenda took home the award for our board member of the year. And then I think that Jennifer had some of the most authentic words to share that just really showed how CHROs and the work that so many of our members are doing are truly changing lives. And to see the talent marketplace look so different across three different kinds of workforces um, was just really cool. It brought it all to life for me. 
Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And it was my honor to be on the stage uh, moderating that panel. I uh, just noticed over in the chat a question from Julie Munsell. Has, have we done a, a webinar on internal talent mobility? We definitely have, spanning back a few years. For I4CP members, we've done several flash calls, so you can search for those recordings at our website. But we've also touched on this many times in this uh, public call series on Thursdays and on the other days we used to hold them dating back to 2020. So if you go up in the recording archive, um, I'm sure, and just search on talent mobility, you'll definitely find some there. Uh, there was another panel that also touched on talent, uh, so I wanted to highlight these four folks from Ford, VNS Health, Waste Management, and BMO uh, as well. And I wanted to call out one comment that Melissa Thompson made. Um, she said that uh, high-performance organizations now have an always-on EVP and that you need to be regularly updating your employee value prop, whereas pre-pandemic, many organizations might have reasonably adjusted their EVP only every five or seven years. Maybe marketing would get together with HR uh, and look at the EVP and make some adjustments out on the website and and elsewhere where that's sort of documented and, and put out there for both internal audience and external. But Melissa's point is now, it, this the change is happening so fast, there are so many things going on um, that you really need to look at your EVP as being always on, always being adjusted on, say, a monthly basis, if not just continuously. I thought that was a really profound, I hadn't heard that phrase before, uh, and I thought that was a really profound point that she made as part of this panel. All right, also on the topic of EVP and, and uh, employee experience or people experience, this is another key takeaway that we wanted to share with you today from the conference. We had Yolanda Seals Cofield from PwC. Uh, she shared a little bit about what they've done with a talent marketplace um, to increase mobility. They call it their My Plus Talent Marketplace. Um, they, they actually use this as a benefit in recruiting uh, when they're trying to bring people in. They talk about all the uh, talent development that can that can happen in, in the career improvement if you join PwC. Um, they like to focus on having a very high quality consumer level experience at the organization so that people aren't living one life at home in their personal lives and then have a low tech experience. I love the uh, the rest and renewal service that they provide their employees, which is a concierge tool uh, for planned vacation time that even tracks any interruptions from, say, the boss or their peers. So really respecting that vacation time, that PTO um, in the organization. We did also ask a question uh, of the audience uh, for the coming year. How are you investing in the employee experience of your organization? Not surprisingly, 72% said uh, investing more, only 5% investing less, 23% investing about the same. So great to see the ratio there, almost three quarters saying they're investing more in people experience. And of course, PwC took home one of our next practice awards for this work. And what's very cool is they are in the middle of their journey. They talked about this as being both a cultural and a digital transformation. And so so, work, so much of the work that they've done so far has still really been on the cultural side. So in the coming years, I'm excited to hear their updates of how they bring in more of that digital aspect to continue the level of personalization that they're bringing into their employees' lives. Yeah, we are we are not against having repeat guests at the Next Practices Now conference in Scottsdale each year. So if there is significant uh, change in the way you just described at PwC, I'm sure we'll we'll get Yolanda back for that. All right, second to last um, takeaway that we wanted to share with you today is this issue of trust. Uh, I, don't, I don't believe we had a speaker or presentation or panel that literally had trust in the title or or where that was the 
the uh, the headline. Uh, and yet, I felt like this was something that both in the board meetings that we had on Monday and then uh, throughout the conference, again, like DE&I, like AI, like culture, was sort of a through line through a lot of the, the sessions. And it's not something that maybe is cr an acute critical issue this moment, but it seems like it's growing and, and maybe will grow throughout this year and into 2024. And so it's trust in leadership, uh, it's trust in, in workers by leaders, um, it's trust in policies and the individual decisions that organizations are making, it's trust in some of the processes that we use in, on the people side of the business, whether it's performance management, succession, equity, um, transparency of, of those processes in particular is what I would call out. Um, it's trust for those organizations that have already had layoffs or are planning to soon. We've seen in the headlines some of the ways that some organizations have not done a good job firing people over Zoom calls and by email and, and other things where maybe that's not in alignment with the organization's true values or culture. Um, you see here one of the findings from our uh, healthy culture study, uh, organizations' cultures are toxic. Uh, when that's the case, they're 10 times more likely to indicate having an unsafe environment for expressing opinions or concerns is a top issue in their organization. Um, so yet another really compelling finding from that study. Um, so anyway, I, I felt like even though this wasn't one where I could highlight a specific speaker or presentation, I felt like this was a topic that was sort of bubbling under the surface last week. Yeah, and such a macro theme too. So anything that is circulating through the air as we talk about the economy, world politics is definitely going to permeate through your employees' experience. So I think this is a great one to pull out, Tom. Yeah, and I, I get this feeling, at least in the U.S., that that politics is is never ending, but is going to kind of be only on an on an up ramp as we mm -hmm. go into twenty twenty four, for better or worse. Uh, one other aspect of this that, that maybe was the, the session that most hit on uh, the issue of trust, uh, specifically on psychological safety, at least that element of it, we did have Amy Edmondson, who called in uh, externally to the event, uh, Novartis Professor of Leadership and Management at Harvard Business School. I'm sure you've read some of her articles over the years in HBR and elsewhere, and she made some really great points. Uh, learning organizations need to have a strong network of teams. Often you've got strong trust within a team, but a truly outstanding, high-performing organization is one where there's strong networking even between those teams. Um, she said too many organizations are prone to not promoting experimentation, free expression. Uh, we just noted that last data point from our healthy culture study. Um, and you see some of the other key findings from her work. Um, definitely a great friend of I4CP. We're, we're always enlightened whenever she can speak with us, uh, even if she had to come in virtually. My favorite thing that she always says is, I mean, she's made a lot of her career, at least some of the things she's most well known on for this, but then she also says, guys, this should be table stakes. Like there are so many more higher level things that we should be thinking about in our organizations. But if you don't have this, you can't talk about the other things. Um, so I'm hoping most of our members have this as part of their culture, but this is a huge red flag if you're missing it. Yeah, absolutely. And, and for more on this, in particular, tying it back to uh, employee value proposition, uh, see the, the HBR article uh, that Zeta just put in the link there, Rethink Your EVP, um, that, that she just had published in January. All right, the uh, last takeaway from the event was that HR people know how to have a good time. They know how to party. Uh, we had an event pretty much every night at the conference. Um, you see uh, one a smaller event that we had there on the left, I believe that was the award ceremony. Um, we had a big party on Tuesday with a band, sort of Beach Boys, 60s, 
themed music. Um, I, I didn't know which of the, the photos from the party we had permission to use from some of our member or prospect organizations. So I didn't want to post any of those. So I chose some with some of our happy I4CP employees. You see uh, Zeta, who's with us on the call today, uh, in, in the photo on the top right. You see the venue there. And then our two co-founders, uh, Kevin Oaks and Jay Jamar, are there in the bottom right. Uh, we had a, a dress-up theme uh, that was 60s style, um, so hope Kevin doesn't mind me sharing this photo out <laughs> to the public here. Um of silence doesn't apply to costumes, is, is what I like to say. Uh, what were your thoughts on the event, Carrie? I had so much fun. I mean, one, I've always harbored the idea that our audience likes to dress up and they're just waiting for that excuse, and I was really blown away by so many of our attendees that came in costume for our events and just really felt into the awards after party, felt into our, our kind of 60s um, party. But also I heard some of our members reflect back to me what I really believe. This is such a special event for the I4CP team. We're a fully remote company. We have this one chance a year to come together and really get to know people. So of course we're focused on our attendees and giving them the time of their year but it's also really special for us. I got to meet my team in person for the first time. Um, they're brilliant and just a huge thanks to Tom, the whole research team that shared so much of our research on stage and so much of our marketing team and really all parts of I4CP that puts this on each year. Yeah, thanks, Carrie. Appreciate that. Um, and yeah, we we like to we like to do these social events. Uh, as we mentioned earlier at the outside of the call, you know, there's the networking that happens over the lunches by topic area. There's the the one on one networking that can happen. The the workshop uh, aspect of of some of the sessions where you're working together at your tables. Um, but it's good to let our hair down and and have an event like this, dress up a little, uh, and just have a good time uh, as well. Thank you for listening to this episode of I4CP's Next Practices Weekly podcast. I encourage you to join us live for these discussions each Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern, 8 a.m. Pacific time, so that you can ask questions of our guests and co-hosts and participate in the conversation. Just go to i4cp.com forward slash events to register. We hope you'll keep tuning in as I4CP brings you more great HR executives to discuss how high-performance organizations are leveraging best and next practices in HR. Uh, registration is open for our Next Practices Now conference in late March this year in Scottsdale, Arizona. Uh, it's an annual tradition that we're super excited to be back to after two years of being virtual only. It is both in-person and virtual, so if you can't make it in Scottsdale, you do have that other option, and there'll be a lot more information coming on the speaker lineup very soon. Thank you, and we hope you have a great and productive week ahead.